Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We'll read from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Beginning at verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew What he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that is perhaps well known by so many. We pray that you would help us to see things old and new in it. But most of all, that your intent for putting it in your word will be made clear to us that your Holy Spirit would bless the reading and preaching of it even now. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So what is the largest meal you've ever prepared? Might have been on a holiday or even for a church dinner or some gathering of some sort. I've thought about that and the meals that I've prepared aren't very large. But what if you had to prepare a meal for about 11,000 people? That's something, huh? Well, at the school where my son attends, my oldest... Uh, They have a mess hall, if you want to call it that, a cafeteria, and uh, they feed just about every day 11,000 students, and they have a program where a parent of a student can enter to basically win uh, a a meal for a day. So if you you enter this um, and you win it, then your meal, your recipe will be chosen. And used at the University of Georgia one day. And so my wife submitted one such recipe. And it was a, um, a kale, apple, p- 
con and feta salad. In order to feed for one meal 11,000 students and to serve this salad, it would take 1,200 plus pounds of fresh kale, over 600 pounds of Fuji apples, over 121 pounds of cranberries, over 132 pounds of pecans, 345 pounds of feta cheese, 257 pounds of honey, 10 gallons of extra virgin olive oil, 21 gallons of apple cider vinegar, 18 pounds of salt, and 7 pounds of pepper. And so you can imagine all the ingredients and what that might cost to go into such a salad of that size. And so as we think about that, We see here that our Lord Jesus miraculously fed, the text says in verse 10, about 5,000 men. That's the way they numbered people back then, according to the men. And so if women were there, if each man had a a wife with him, that would number 11,000. If there were children, some say there could have been as many as 20,000 people. And so this was no small meal that our Lord Gave to these people. Now, as we talk about the feeding of the 5,000 here, this is probably one of the most famous miracles of our Lord Jesus. It is one of those signs. In fact, in the Gospel of John, it is the fourth sign performed by our Lord. And it is the only miracle besides the resurrection recorded in all four of the Gospels in the Bible. Now, sometimes we focus on the lad, the, the little boy, the young man who shared his lunch. And we shouldn't overlook him. He did share children. That's a good thing. But as we'll see, I think this miracle is for more than just him or even those who were fed. I think ultimately it's for the disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the point of the miracle then becomes what is our initial reaction or response to a need that seems impossible for us to provide ourselves. Difficult situations in life. To whom, to what, or to whom do we turn in such circumstances? I think that's at the heart of what is here in this miracle. Now this scene, the feeding of the 5,000 will set up for Jesus the teaching that he himself is the bread of life, that manna come down from heaven. But let us not overlook the message of this miracle itself. And so we'll look at that, at this this miracle this morning and what it is that we learn from. We'll consider the particulars of this miracle and then several of the principles we can apply to our lives and should apply to our lives today. As, As we think about miracles, let's not put God in a box and say he can't do this, he can't do that. I mean, the scripture says he cannot lie, he cannot sin. That's true. And I'm not going to say God cannot perform a miracle today, but as we've seen with miracles, they serve a purpose in scripture. They identify the one speaking on behalf of God, that he is who he says he is, that his message is true. And Jesus himself, as the prophet of God, performs such miracles. There is the miracle, I believe, of the new birth today. But we must recognize that uh, things such as this are not common today. And that being said, 
we should not conclude that this miracle has no meaning for us today. It certainly does. For every age, it has meaning. So let's consider then the particulars of this miracle. We need to get the scene of what is happening here. Um, At the beginning at verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee. After these things, those things which happened in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5 and verse 1, it talks about a certain feast. It could have been the Feast of Passover. We aren't told. It could have been the Feast of Tabernacles. And so based on which feast it was to which John refers in chapter 5 and verse 1, it could have been six months to a year. If it was the Passover that it referred to, then another year has passed because in John chapter 6 and verse 4, it says now the Passover was near. And so the point is some considerable amount of time had passed and there was much that happened in that six months, in those six months to the year. Jesus, again, had been teaching, maturing his disciples. He had sent them out on a preaching uh, task. They came back and returned to him and so forth. And so that time passed. And so verse one tells us that after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. It was called such because the Romans had settled in that area. It was named after one of the Caesars. It was also in scripture uh, called several different names. It was in the Old Testament, the Sea of Kinnereth or Kinnereth or Chinnereth, Gennesaret and so forth. But the question becomes, why did Jesus do this? Why did he and his disciples get in a boat and sail across uh, this rather large lake, the Sea of Galilee? Well, again, we search the other Gospels and we'll, we'll find this if we were to do so. In Mark 6, 31, it says Jesus invited them to rest. They needed some downtime after all. They had just come back from their preaching assignment. We also learn in the other Gospels um, that John the Baptist had been murdered by Herod. And also, as we've read in John's Gospel, the heat was on Jesus himself. The leaders were figuring out how it was they could frame Jesus, how they could put him to death. And so for all these reasons, Jesus determines it's time to get away, to get some downtime, to get some rest, to to fly under the radar for a little bit. So he takes his disciples and they begin to sail across the Sea of Galilee into a place where they might do so and have such a, a retreat. So they arrive where Jesus had wanted them to go to that destination And uh, they go to the mountainside, the hills, and there he sits with his disciples. And John tells us, by the way, it is the time of Passover. That's in verse four. Now, this is significant, not only because of what Jesus is doing throughout this chapter. In one sense, he's rehearsing uh, the deliverance of Moses and God's people in the Old Testament. And uh, there was the initial Passover But also, it was the time of Passover, and the Jewish people just descended upon Jerusalem at this time of the year. And as Josephus tells us, so many came to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas at this time that it made the Romans nervous. You know, what if there were to be a revolution at this time? The the Romans would have a problem on their hands. 
And so it was about March or April, that time of the year, probably a year before Jesus's crucifixion. And it's significant that we are told it is the time of Passover because, again, the reason I just mentioned about the number of Jews descending upon this area and the uh, message that Christ himself will give later in the chapter. Now, it's interesting in the Greek text in verse 2, uh, in what lies under our English translation, there basically is this picture. It goes something like this. Then a great multitude, that's like a multitude of multitudes, were following him because they were seeing his signs, which he was performing on those who were diseased. And so it's continuous. You know, there were those who saw the things that Jesus did, his great miracles, his healing of the sick, and they were in awe of him. They wanted to meet him, and perhaps many of them had such ailments. They wanted to be healed, or they had a family member, a friend who needed such healing. And uh, in Mark 14 and verse 13, Matthew rather tells us that the people, as they saw Jesus, they walked around the lake following him and his disciples. Mark 6 said that many ran on foot from the cities, the surrounding cities. And so the word gets out. There's Jesus. He's on the boat. He's going over there. Okay, and then the people, they tell their friends. They tell their friends. And the picture I get is that there are these, these small creeks and bodies of water all flowing down and they merge into this river that rushes towards Jesus. Jesus and his disciples, eventually they arrive again to their destination on the other side. But then there's this problem. There's this dilemma. This dilemma for Jesus and his disciples and also the people that are following them. So imagine there's Jesus again with his disciples. He sits them down and, and, and finally they have the opportunity for some rest. They can regroup. They can go over their preaching assignment. They can learn more and so forth. Jesus himself, we're told elsewhere, was exhausted. But then we're told in our passage that Jesus lifted his eyes. Jesus lifted his eyes and what does he see? It says in verse 5, Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. Just when they could get this rest and relaxation, here are those multitudes coming. Now, what does Jesus do? Is Jesus is concerned about his own rest and relaxation? No. We see the selflessness of our Savior. The very one who tells us to take up our cross daily and follow him, he takes up that cross, eventually, literally the cross, but he denies himself daily. And so it says in verse five, he saw the great multitude and he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread? And you see the other gospel writers, they tell us that Jesus did teach the crowd. Jesus healed some, I believe, as well. And so there was ministry to be had and it was nearing the day's end. They were on foot. They needed fuel, not for their cars, but for their own bodies. They needed food, and they had none, or not enough. 
And so Jesus poses this question to one of his disciples who will be his apostle, Philip. He says, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Perhaps one reason Jesus asked Philip was because he was from that area, at least nearby. And he would know where to to get food. But really, if you look, John tells us in verse 6, But this he, Jesus, said to test him, for he, Jesus, himself knew what he, Jesus, would do. Jesus asked this question, even though he knew the answer already, even though he knew what what he would do after the question was answered. He knew that he would feed the 5,000. And so we should conclude then that Philip, as well as the other disciples, as well as ourselves today, needed a lesson in the school of Christ. A lesson in the compassion of Christ, a lesson in the power of Christ and the provision of our Lord Jesus. Now, what does Philip say? If you look there. Verse 7, he answered him, Philip, and it says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. 200 denarii, remember a denarii in biblical times was for the working man a day's wage, and so roughly this is eight months salary. Not even eight months salary is enough to provide bread for these people that they should get just a little. And besides, where are they going to get that amount of bread at this time? And so Philip really didn't pass the test. He, he probably has little faith at this time. And remember, the scripture says that it only takes the faith of a child. But the Lord is going to continue to grow our faith, to work in our lives, to strengthen our faith, as we'll see. And today, as we think about Philip and his response, um, we, we might think of our own circumstances. We might look at our own budgets when certain needs come our way. Or as a church, we might look at our church budget and say, there's no way this is going to be possible. And we must be financially responsible. We must be good stewards of the resources God gives to us in our own lives, in our families, in our churches, and so forth. But there's something more here that we, we ought to remember and consider. And we'll get to that in just a moment. What, what did Philip fail to remember? He failed to remember that it was Jesus who had turned water into wine. It was Jesus who had healed so many. It was Jesus who healed the man at the pool at Bethesda. And, and therefore, since this same Jesus performed all these miracles, could not Jesus himself take care of this problem that was before them? That's the lesson. Well, Andrew, he has a solution sort of there in verse 8. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And evidently this this lad had something to share with the people. He had these barley loaves and these fish, five loaves and two small fish. um, Philip 
he admits, or rather Andrew admits, that really this isn't going to do very much. And when you think about what this little boy had, he had these five loaves. They were more like flatbread. And then these fish would have been very small, probably the size of sardines. Today, you would take the fish and put them on a piece of bread, and that would be your lunch. And so Andrew is a little more resourceful than Philip, but he too fails the test. One has said this, because we are like Philip so many times, we are like Andrew. We, the disciples of Christ, we bring minus signs to the table, but Jesus brings multiplication signs to the table. See, that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to take the bread. He's going to take the fish and miraculously multiply them. It's amazing. So we have then this divine solution, verses 10 through 13. And so in verse 10, Jesus said, he takes control, he takes charge. He says, make the people sit down. He tells them to recline. You know, that's how they ate back then. And then John explains there's much grass in the place. It was the springtime and in the summertime in those arid areas, the hot areas, the grass, it, it dies and gets hard and brittle. It's uncomfortable. But springtime rolls around and the new grass forms and it was like having cushion. And so Jesus He's, he's telling them to recline, to get comfortable. And so it says the men sat down in number about 5,000, at least 5,000, if not 10 to 20,000 people. And so we're told that Jesus takes the bread. He gives thanks and he distributes the loaves and the fish by means of his disciples. Children, if you wonder why it is that we give thanks before we eat our food or should do so, it's because we have this example of our Lord Jesus here. We acknowledge from where it is that we get food. You think, well, my mom cooked the food. Maybe your dad cooked the food. My mom maybe helped to earn the food. My dad earned the food. That's true. But every good and perfect gift, the Bible says, comes from above. Ultimately, it comes from God. And so Jesus here, in his humanity, he prays to his Father and he gives thanks for the food that is before them. And I think also for what is about to happen. There's an opportunity to bring glory to himself and to bring glory to his heavenly Father. And so there's this, this miracle. Somehow Jesus powerfully, divinely takes the bread and the wine. It's multiplied. And he uses his disciples to distribute that which he has created to distribute the food for the others. And that's important for us to remember as well. I think about the ministry of the word today. You know, it's the pastor's job, the preacher's job, simply to deliver the word that God has given to him. His holy word. Not to be clever, not to make up things, but faithfully to deliver the word of God to his disciples. And so these disciples here deliver the bread and the food or the fish to the 5,000 plus. And so if you notice there what Jesus commands, it says in verse, at the end of verse 11, they had as much as they wanted. Uh, there was... 
The fact that they were filled in verse 12. And then there's leftovers. He said to his disciples, verse 12, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up, filled the 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. And so those of you who have parents that went through the the Depression, those of you who still have been affected by that through family members and so forth, you will appreciate our Lord here. He doesn't waste anything. He has leftovers. As my mother-in-law would say, landovers. There are no land leftovers. They're landovers. But the point here is that there was such an abundance that they all ate as much as they wanted. They were filled. They were, it says, satisfied with this bread and this fish, by the way, which was food of the poor. And there were leftovers, so many leftovers, they filled these large baskets, 12 of them. I don't know if that signifies the 12 tribes of Israel or not. Some people say that. But there were 12 baskets. They were large, full of leftovers. So there's no denial of what Jesus did here. This miracle. This abundance. Okay? So we need to recognize that as well. Well, in verses 14 and 15, we are reminded of the true colors of those who are following Jesus. In verse 14, it says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. What are they talking about? So the prophet refers to Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, God through Moses promised of a prophet like Moses that he would raise in the midst of Israel. And this would be the Messiah, the prophet king who would come. And so they were looking for some prophet of some sort, a Messiah, a Christ, a king. It's the time of Passover. It's kind of like a national holiday for them. And so while they are all there, this would be an opportune time for them to claim their king, to seize him, to take him, for him politically to take charge, physically to take charge, you know, to call them to arms if necessary, to get out of under the bondage of these Romans, you know, kind of like the Egyptians from long ago. And so they said, this is truly the prophet who is come in the world. In verse 15, it says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So providentially, miraculously, he escapes from him. This could have been disastrous for the work of Christ, that for which the Father sent him into the world. He came not to be this political deliverer, but to be a spiritual deliverer, to go to the cross and fight that battle, to fight our battle of sin for us. And so we see then their attempt at exploiting the miracles of Christ. You know, there are those today who would take advantage of such people who are in desperate times and maybe they want to raise money for themselves, for their ministry, and they prey upon people who uh, have no solution to their problems of sickness and poverty, and they tell them to send their money in, and, and Jesus is going to multiply their money and Our Lord would indicate otherwise in his word. He's going to rebuke these people who will soon turn away from them. 
the 5,000 plus, because he's going to start talking about his kingdom, the true nature of his kingdom. And so then these people we see, for the most part, they came to Jesus to get something. But they missed the most important thing. Unless we today make the same mistake, let us consider now quickly the principles for our lives today. Principles of application from this miracle. There are three areas I would like to make such applications. First of all, we see the principle concerning the person of Christ himself. You know, Jesus is the one who is compassionate. We see that here as he has sympathy. He has pity for those who have such need. We see the compassion of Jesus. In fact, in Mark six thirty four, it says Jesus, when he came out and saw the great multitude, these people, he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Here they were, wandering about, being desperate, hungry, with ailments, disease. Jesus has compassion for sinners. Do we have such compassion? Do we show the compassion of Christ to others? That's the question we need to ask this morning. But I remind you, even when we don't, he has compassion upon us. We also see his grace here towards his disciples in dealing with his disciples. I mean, I mean, there's there's Philip, there's Andrew. They failed the test. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He knew they would fail the test. And yet he asked them the question, why to draw out of them? To see where they are spiritually, to see their need for him, for his grace and his own compassion. How many lessons have we as Christians already learned? Through God's patience, our Lord Jesus's grace. And how many lessons have we yet to learn? In John 13 and verse one, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, it says he loved them to the end. Christ has not given up on us. Christ has not left his love for us. No, he loves us to the end. He will see to it that we Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We see his power here. Um, his creative power. This goes back to John 1 verse 3. Where it says there about Jesus. All things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus is not only the one who saves us. But being the second person of the Trinity. The Godhead. He is the one who created us. He is our creator. He has made all things. By the word of his power, as we say. And this is a creative miracle. He takes, he multiplies the bread and the fish. And this shows us his power. But we also learn something about his kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not a political and earthly kingdom. Jesus himself will tell this to Pilate. They want to make him king. Maybe they're the religious right, you know. They want to make him king. They want to make him president so that he can make everything right. And he just disappears from them. He'll have no part of that. And as Christians, we need to be careful. We don't get the cart before the horse when it comes to politics. And, and I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying don't be an active Christian 
participant in the political process. We should. We're salt. We're light. We're the salt, the light of the world and of the earth. We should vote our biblical convictions. And I believe that the nations that are should have laws modeled after the law and the commandments of God. No doubt. But even if such a state were to be established, that would not save us. It's only the blood of Jesus that will save us. And so we're reminded of that even here, I think, as we see what they were seeking. And so think about it. If, if Christ is the one who is all-powerful, if we see the, the nature of his kingdom, if he is the one who is full of compassion and grace, this, this leads us to another area of application, and that is the providence of God. Sometimes the needs we have are met long after we think they should be met. And sometimes they're met in a way that we would not have wanted or anticipated. And I think here there's a lesson for us. There is the disciples look around They're They're brought to their wits end. They realize they cannot meet this need. And so we need to understand that Jesus is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. He is the Lord who provides, whether it's our salvation, whether it's our daily needs. By the way, we need to distinguish between a need and a want. You know, if I want a new golf club set, that's not a need. If I want to play golf, that's not a need. If I want to play Frisbee golf, that's not a need. If if I want to live another day. Is that a need on God's timetable? Does God consider that a need for me? You see? And we need to recognize God's providence in our lives. And, and when it comes to, to making bread, to earning bread, um, God provides that. He ordinarily uses means, we say, as the Bible teaches, if a man does not work, he does not eat. But I love Psalm 145. In verse 15, it's talking about the providence of God, how he provides for his creation. And it says this, the eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Do you believe that? We call that God's common grace. His goodness to his creation. He makes it to rain on the just and the unjust. And so we should see here that God is concerned about our physical well-being. Jesus teaches us that in the miracles. That he is concerned about our bodily frame. The needs that we have, which are physical in nature. Now he'll move to the spiritual needs of these people towards the middle and end of this chapter. And they won't like that so much. They're concerned about their physical needs. But let us not forget that God is concerned about them. And if God is loving, if he is graceful, if he is compassionate, if he is in control of all this creation, if he provides, then what must we conclude when we don't have a meal or it seems that we won't have bread on the table Or we have a sickness and we're not going to be healed. We need to understand there's a purpose in that. And we see that here. Jesus 
delayed this miracle to teach his disciples a lesson. And so as we think about that, you might say, well, okay, I get it. He's Lord over all. I get it. He's sovereign. Then what ultimately is the lesson we should learn? Well, that brings us to the point of application there concerning the problems we face. You need to know this. There are no unforeseen circumstances with God. Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. We say it this way. He has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. This feeding of the 5,000 was part of his divine plan. The fact that they didn't have food, they had this great need. It was part of the divine plan. And Christ takes Notice of this, he makes use of their need to teach them a lesson that he is the Lord who provides. And so that's the lesson for us today. You know, John says here in verse 6, he did this to test them. The same word in a different form is used in James 1.4, where it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How in the world can I consider it joy when I fall into a trial? Trials typically are unpleasant. They, they make me nervous. I often fall into the sin of worry that Jesus forbids in Matthew 6. How might I consider that a joy, joyous occasion? Knowing that the Lord tests my faith. And by testing my faith, he produces perseverance and endurance. Testing means to go through the fire, to be refined, to make the metal of your faith, as it were, stronger. That's what Jesus is doing here, and that's what he does every day in our lives. And by the way, if you're a newer Christian and you say, well, I haven't really gone through much trial in my life, then just hang on. It says when the Lord uses these things, he uses other means as well. But he applies often the word of God in our lives through the trials we face. And we're to be reminded that he is the one to whom we are to flee when we have such trials in our lives. I mean, whether it's the, the very basic things, as I've said, or the work of the ministry. All of us are called in some way to serve in the church. And let us not forget that when we see such needs, the Lord often uses us, his people, to fill such needs in the lives of others. You know, when the Israelites of old were in the wilderness, um, God, you know, had already delivered them from the house of bondage, from Egypt, from that political tyranny. And really, that's a picture of our salvation. We're delivered from the tyranny of sin and Satan so that we might come to Sinai and serve God. Well, in between Egypt and Sinai, there they were in the wilderness. And in um, Exodus 16, they began to complain. They complained against Moses. They complained against God. Why? Because they had nothing to eat. It says that in Exodus 16 and verse 2, they complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Verse 3, it says that they said, Oh, that we had died in the hand by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. 
For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They complained because they didn't have enough. But then in verse four, it says, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quote every day that I may what? Test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God tested his people of old. In the New Testament, Christ tests the 5,000. And especially he tests his own disciples. And beloved, he tests you and me today. And here, as we see Jesus reenacting some of those events in the wilderness, the lesson is that he gives us sustenance for daily life. He gives us sustenance for eternal life. And so the question is, will you trust him? He cares for the lilies and the birds of the air. How much more does he care for you? And for those who don't have this struggle, those of you who are financially well off, are you content? Do you agree with the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 16? 6 and verse 8 rather. Having food and clothing with these shall we be content. Are you thankful for the Lord's provision in your life? For what we must see here is He is the only one able and willing to supply our every need. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for this recorded miracle of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, that You are the God who provides. And whether it's on our timetable or not, You know what is best for us. And You know know the best time to give it to us. And you know when to withhold things from us as well. We pray that we would bow before you, that we would trust and rely upon you for everything. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.